0: Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and addict. As always, our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction and the road to recovery. We're not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12 step based organizations or groups in any way. This is the first episode of season three. In season three, the premise of season three is to have all my coworkers, my recovery team, staff members, not only with Sanctuary Recovery Centers that I work for, we also have a sister company, New New Method Healing Center, and I couldn't think of anyone better to have on than my very own friend, part of my personal recovery team, and also my work recovery team, so I want to welcome Pat to the show. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. (laughs) Well, it's good to have you on here, you know, and I should have had you on in season two when I had my real team, so I had to get you on right away, right off the jump right off jump street and get you on here, man. So you could share your message of experience, strength, and hope. And every time I bring somebody on, you know, I always like to think about, you know, the story of how we met. Do you remember that?
1: Oh, I remember.
0: Oh, you remember that?
1: (laughs) I remember that.
0: So it's a funny story. And, you know, it's one of those things where I always think about, you know, God, right. And how God works in my life and how he, he puts people in my life. When I do my part, I get experience a miracle. And this is one story that really sticks out to me. So we met in prison and, uh, You know, I was you know teaching a drug class for two years, and I was doing all these things and helping all these guys. And you know, COVID hits right, and it hit our yard pretty hard. And they locked our yard down. And I was trying to you know have the ability to to still teach a drug class, and you know have a room and still be able to provide recovery and also a major program that allowed uh, you know inmates to get out early because I needed a major program. So what ended up happening was I didn't get I didn't get to teach the class right. I didn't get to do any of those things. What ended up happening is I ended up getting a kitchen job. And I'm talking about 3am kitchen. And I remember when I seen that chrono, they call them a chrono, and they see your job assignment lands on your bunk. And I remember seeing that. And my ego didn't like that shit. Not, (laughs) not, not not, still doesn't, right. But uh, I remember, man, I, I was talking to some of my guys, Josh S and Adam T and, you know, Matt Lankford and all the guys and I remember I, I was just like, dude, I can't believe they put me in the kitchen at 3 a.m. After everything that I've done for them, that's how they're going to do me. And, and I remember that, you know, I had so many sponsees over the years that got that same 3 a.m. kitchen chrono. And I would tell them, look, you got to go. You got to do your best. That's what recovery is all about. Suiting up, showing up. No matter where they put you, you're on time. You have a positive attitude. And you do everything you can to pack something into, into the job. And so I was like, man, I got to practice what I preach because you and me both know, Pat, <laughs> when your feet don't match your lips, that's an ugly sight. Right. And so I didn't want to be that guy. And so I remember I went in there and, uh, you know, I went into the kitchen 3 a.m. ready to roll. Right. And I walked in there and I was like, where's the clipper room I'm doing dishes? What's up? I'm ready to handle this thing. And I had a positive attitude. And, you know, they locked me in the in the, uh, in the clipper room, the dishwashing room. And the trays are flying through the trap. and They locked me in there with you yes sir they locked me in there with pat and you know uh and junior Junior, shout out to guy johnson he's still doing time i just actually emailed him this morning you know big shout out to him and uh you know i remember we worked for a couple days dude i'm talking we were having fun i mean we we were suited and booted we were had trash bags all over us so we didn't get wet we're spraying people through the trap we're pushing trays back out we're laughing we're joking and we started to talk a little bit about recovery. And I remember you said you were struggling a little bit, you know, and ultimately, you know, that led to you, you know, coming to the meetings and and ultimately I sponsored you and had that privilege of, of doing that and witnessing a miracle. And the only reason why any of this would have happened because I did my part and I went to the clip room with a positive attitude and I showed up,
1: you know, and I let God demonstrate through me what he can do. Do you remember? What do you remember about that, Pat? So I remember the lieutenant came in and he said, there's no way these guys could be this happy working in the clip room. That's impossible. <laughs> there's water flying all over the place. We're laughing. The, the other inmates on the yard are joking with us, coming through, making conversations. It was the most turned up they had ever seen anybody in the clip room. It's like the worst job in the entire prison system, but we're <laughs> making the best out of it, right? And that's where I meet Jason. And I'm like, dude, how is this dude so happy? Right. How is this dude not struggling to keep it together when he had everything going on for him and it was taken from him? And then he's placed in this situation where Junior introduced me to you. Yeah, he did. And he said, hey, man, this is my sponsor. I've been talking to Junior about some of the struggles that I've had in my addiction. Right. Couldn't kick it on my own. Right. So I asked Jason. I said, hey, man, will you be my sponsor?
0: Yeah. And that's how it happened. dude.
1: (laughs) Right there in the clipper room. Right.
0: I mean, we were, dude, we had, I mean, we were having some fun in there, man. And uh, if we're not having fun, dude, what's the point, you know? And, uh, and so then we take this journey, dude, this almost, you know, over a year journey together, you know, working the steps, watch you sponsor some guys and chairing meetings and service commitments and all these things and getting out and having the the amazing life you have working in recovery, all the blessings that have have rained down on you and the promises that have materialized over and over in your life. And we're going to get to all that, but in order to get to that, we got to get back to where it started. So let's hear a little bit about your journey. So you were born in Wisconsin. So Packers? Yes, sir. Go oh. Pack, go. <laughs> oh, what happened to Devontae Adams? <laughs> hey, let's not talk about that. That's a rough subject. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sore subject. Yeah, You know, and so you grew up in Wisconsin. And, you know, I just want to hear, you know, because obviously I know your story, right? So let's hear a little bit about the family dynamic. I know there was some divorce and trauma in it and some things. So why don't you share what it was like growing up in Wisconsin?
1: All right. So I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in a little town called Rocktown. And uh, it was a little farm town. I uh, lived on a farm with my dad and mom until I was about three years old. Right. When I was two, the cows tried to kill me. They tried to kill you. (laughs) My dog saved my life. So I was I was two years old, you know, hopping around the yard on the outside of the front yard of our house on the farm. And somehow I managed to get over the fence. And the cows noticed that it startled them. There was a two-year-old on the field. They didn't recognize what that was. And they they all started coming after me. Well, we had a big German shepherd that jumped out of the house, jumped over the fence, and saved my life. That's oh, one really that's one experience I remember. Whoa, I was, whoa, what, was your, what was your dog's name? Tasha. Tasha. Yeah.
0: Shout out, Tasha. <laughs> right. Shout out to Tasha and she saved your life. Man, that's crazy. What they tried to trample you? Yeah tried to stampede me oh it's so I always think of that meme when it's that little kid hold right. my beer yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so
1: what else what else happened man what was so, that like what's the so, family like so basically after that um when I was three we moved from that farm and we moved to another small town in Wisconsin and I remember my parents um well the first thing was my dog Tasha we couldn't take her with us the dog that saved my life so that was kind of traumatic for a young kid to take his best friend away from him and uh, then to see his parents fight a lot you know my mother and dad they were good people they were great parents to me but they couldn't make it work with each other right so for that next couple years until I was about five um, it was just a lot of fighting and verbal argumentation within the household that I had to witness as a young child uh, I remember I was five right before they got divorced my dad was trying to teach me how to ride a bike he's like this is how we're gonna learn son and he pushes me down the biggest hill in town (laughs) (laughs) oh you're gonna learn today yeah exactly he's like you're gonna learn and he pushes me down the hill boom i smacked my head they thought i was dead right (laughs) my mom's freaking out my dad's like pam get the car we need to take him to the emergency room we get in the car and i wake wake up and my parents were relieved (laughs) but but yeah so a lot of arguing and uh Fighting within the parents in my household, right? My my sister Megan was just born, so she was two and a two and a half, I was five, and then they ended up divorcing. They said, This is enough, we're not gonna do this anymore. So it kind of put me and my sister into a predicament to where we weren't gonna be in our father's lives very much anymore, right? My dad was very loving. He always looked out for his kids, made sure we had the best of everything. But once my parents got divorced, we went into a household with my mother and the new guy she was with.
0: Oh, the new guy. Yeah. You're not my dad.
1: (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. And you know me, just imagine me as a kid. I was turned up, dude. I was (laughs) kicking shit, throwing shit around the house, you know, misbehaving a lot because uh, that's what I had seen in my household. So that's what I was used to. So that's who I became. I started wrestling when I was five years old, and uh, that kind of helped me cope with a lot of the things that were going on in the household, the sports, right? So I was really good at it. I remember going to wrestling tournaments. My dad would rarely be there because he'd be out of town. He lived in another town at this time. And my stepdad turned, he was, a, he was an alcoholic, right? So he would come home, and uh, he would be aggravated about everything that was going on in his life, and he would take it out on us.
0: Mm, yeah, that's tough. Mm-hmm. untreated alcoholism, you right. know, irritable, restless, discontent, you know, and we come home and, you know, we take it out on the, the people that we love the most. And so you start to experience some trauma and, you know, the family dynamic gets switched up, the divorce, you have some learned behaviors as a child, you see some fighting, and that's how you believe communication is. So that's the way you act. And then they throw you into wrestling and that's a, that's a full contact sport in itself. So you're right. going to take out some aggression you know, sports is such a good release and such a good outlet, you know, and that's my story too with soccer, but, you know, that only works for so long until the inevitable ends up happening. And so you moved to uh, Awatuki. Awatuki, town. <laughs> oh, Tuki Town. Oh, Tukey. Oh, out. shout out Awatuki, all the listeners in Awatuki. You came out here when you were 12 years old, and, uh, you know, you came out here and you live with your dad. So what was that like when you show up out here? You don't know anyone, you're out in Awatuki. Um, and now you're living with dad and you got cool dad. Yeah, super
1: cool. Coolest yeah. dad in town, right? Everybody's, every, All of my friends wanted my dad to be their dad at the time because they didn't understand what real parents look like. And they saw my dad like, oh, he lets us party. Oh, he lets us drink, right? Well,
0: let me tell you something. Every every kid wants cool dad and cool mom. But <laughs> I'll tell you right now, cool dad and cool mom kids, they go to prison, brother. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's That's <laughs> what ends up happening, bro. You end up right. going to prison, you know, and so...
1: Um, you know, so what's that time period? Like come out here when you're 12, what's that like seventh, eighth grade? Yep. Seventh grade. Yep. So I'm out here, um, meet some oddball kids in the neighborhood, um, just to try to connect with people because I didn't know anybody. And, uh, the kids that I was connecting with were already a bad influence on me. Right. So I tried to change that up when I got to eighth grade, started getting involved with the popular kids. Right. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to be liked. I, I really had a fear moving out here, not knowing anybody of who's going to like me. How am I going to fit in here? All my friends around me are super rich. I'm an Awatuki, a bunch of millionaires, and I'm wearing Nike.
0: Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> like coming from a small town in Wisconsin, people are making fun of my clothes. Yeah, and I'm like, damn, what the hell am I going to do to fit in here, right? So I get through eighth grade, kill it in wrestling, um, develop some new relationships, And uh, start ninth grade in high school at Mountain Point High School in Ahwatukee. Oh, Mountain Point. Mountain Point. (laughs) Uh, You know what it is, (laughs) Mountain Point. Coming up on that 20-year reunion. (laughs) Are you going to go? This time I plan on it. Yeah, I missed the 10-year reunion because of my addiction. I made up some lies and uh, yeah. <laughs> couldn't back yeah see back what story. happened
0: was i was on this business trip in Colombia, <laughs> right. and then on the way back i stopped in ethiopia to help some starving children yeah. just doing mission work yeah. service work brothers another day yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so basically um i wanted to develop um friendships right when i moved out here my dad was super cool he wasn't around too much in my early childhood So he allowed me to get away with a lot more than I could have got away with in Wisconsin, right? So I was having friends over on the weekends. I was having girls over when I lost my virginity in high school. My dad gave me a high five, Mm -hmm. right? That kind of dad. Attaboy. Right. (laughs) So um, we just started developing this codependent relationship, my dad and I, right? We became friends more than it was a father-son relationship.
0: And so, I mean, you got the house, so I'm assuming there's a lot of parties, a lot of keggers. Um, I mean... Every weekend. Every single weekend, I already know. And, uh, you know, what comes with that is, is, you know, was it the natural progression for you? You started drinking,
1: smoking weed, the acid, ecstasy, coke. Is that your... What was your progression like? So my progression looked like um, I wanted to be liked, right? So I started drinking with the people around me. And once I felt the comfort that I got from alcohol that eased me from wanting to be liked anymore, to be a part of something, I I really enjoyed that feeling, right? So then I started, you know, touching a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of ecstasy on the weekends, a little bit of coke, a little bit of acid, you know, all of the drugs that we were doing within my high school days. Um, But I really remember the change um, the first time I did cocaine, Because when I did cocaine that first time I felt invisible, right? I didn't have any fears. I didn't have any anger built up. I was a new man, (laughs) a new man. And, uh, just telling
0: stories, huh? Oh yeah. I mean, you're a talker as it is. So you're just like me. So throw a little bit of Coke in there, dude. We're fighting for the next story.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So then I became the Coke plug in high school and, uh, I started to sell Coke to pay for the Coke that I wanted to do with my friends. So that way my parents didn't see that my finances were disappearing from the drugs.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, usually typically our ego wants to, you know, us to tell everyone that we're these amazing drug dealers. But, you know, the truth is I'm a drug user and I usually sell just to break even. But I usually always end up in the in the in the red because I'm doing more than I'm selling. And then it gets to the point where I'm not selling anymore. I'm just doing, then I want you to like me so much. I just give it to you or sell it to you for so damn cheap. I mean, I'm always hustling backwards. Was (laughs) that your experience?
1: That was absolutely my experience. And the thing thing was, was my dad was like a really popular sales guru, right? Mm -hmm. He developed companies from nothing and started making them money. And he was known for that in the Valley. He came out here to work for a billionaire from Wisconsin. That's what brought him out here. And uh, I remember the conversation I had with my dad when I started asking him for cash, right? He's, He's like, Let me get a couple bucks, dad. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, need, I just need some money for the movies. Dude. Yeah, I'm going
0: to the movies. haven't seen a movie since 96. <laughs> <laughs> right,
1: right. Well, he was basically like, son, you're going to have to make some money on your own. There's plenty of sales jobs for 15 and 16 year olds. You're going to put him the work.
0: <laughs> you get yourself a telemarketing. Shout out to all the telemarketers out
1: there. You so, telemarketing? So, absolutely. My first job was at uh, MCI.
0: Oh, MCI? Oh, yeah. Weather <laughs>
1: room status. 600 salespeople in one building. And uh, basically what we did is sold phone plans to people that still had phones with the extension cords on Is that know. off baseline over there? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. no, it was off Chandler Boulevard. Chandler Boulevard. Okay. Chandler Boulevard. I know
0: exactly where it's at. You yeah. know, you know, everyone knows my story. And, I, you know, the sales game, telemarketing game, you know. um very, very, you know, long history of that. And I'll tell you right now, anytime anyone ever came across my office and they said that they worked at MCI, I always hired them yeah. because MCI would make you rebuttal like four times before you could hang up. And if you didn't, if you didn't get four no's on the phone, you get written up for it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Well, Plus they had multiple bonuses. Like you had your own credit. I was 16. I had a credit card that was loaded with cash bonuses. So every day after work, I'd be hitting bonus bonus bonus. Yeah, and I'd have that real time cash. So that, that gave me excitement that I never had before, right? Sales, manipulating people into buying things they don't even need. That became a part of my story.
0: And that's why when we do step six, and we talk about removing the objectionable and the character defects, and the reason why they're so hard to shake is because for a long time, lying, cheating, manipulating, stealing, it was valuable to us because it worked. But it works just like, you know, until it doesn't work anymore. especially if you're in sales, I mean, that's pretty much that's what they want to see on your resume. Oh, you lied, cheat, steal. <laughs> Can you start now? <laughs> right. And that's how it works. You know, MCI. They, they, and back in the day, during that period of time, people were making a lot of money. A there, lot. For real, they were. A and and it, there was a lot going on there. So you're doing coke, you're partying, you got cool dad, you have parties at your house all the time. Um, so I think it's safe to say that you barely graduated high school that would be correct
1: Jason. <laughs> I mean how, I mean how 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 barely. So barely as in I rarely went to class, right? I the only reason I I graduated high school is because I developed relationships with the female staff and manipulated my way into to getting in front of the classroom and telling them lies, right, about how amazing at business I am. I was taking all my electives my senior year, right? Mm-hmm. So I was getting good grades in those classes, but I wasn't showing up. I was doing good on the testing. I was manipulating the teachers. So they passed me by the hair of my nuts, bro. I passed <laughs> them. I, I literally was like one credit away from not being able to graduate. And I remember having that conversation with the, with the principal and the vice principal. They're like, what are you going to do? Like you're three credit shy. I had to do an extra elective class my last month in high school, like in the cafeteria during school hours when I could have went home if I would have been doing what I was supposed to before, just to make sure I got that extra credit.
0: Yeah. I mean, usually what ends up happening is the partying gets in the way of school. Yeah. And especially when you're in sales at a young age and you start making money. I mean, even back in the day, I mean, well, my drug habit, I mean, in my partying, you know that that was expensive too, so even though I was making money, I was still broke. Um, but uh, you know, ultimately, what ends up happening is you barely graduate and you go to MCC, MCC, Mesa yep. Community College. Mesa How long Community
1: that college. last? That lasted two years. Two years. Yeah, that lasted. You two graduate? Years. No, no. Oh, well, you
0: might want to finish that. You go or you went there two years. Did you get any credits, or you yeah, were constantly I doing? Did.
1: I completed two years of college, but what it looked like for me was it came to an abrupt stop because of an incident that had happened at a frat party. But before that happened, um, I was completely engulfed into the sales and marketing game, right? At that point, my dad had hired me on, we're, we're starting a company from our garage, right? In Ahwatukee. I remember the, the, the company that he worked for prior to that, Vitalzyme Nutrition, he was the vice president they were so sour that my dad had left that company that they sent everybody in our community letters saying, do you know someone's running a nutrition manufacturer out of their house? Oh, they were hating tough. <laughs> they were hating, dude. They were hating. So basically what happened was um, we created that business out of the house and moved it to a facility right next to Intel, right off of Elliot and I-10. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you know, by this time, you know, you find you're not only doing coke, but you also have some 80 milligram OCs in the mix now. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Them, the, them greenies? <laughs> that,
1: that, oh, mean greens? Mean
0: words, yeah, yeah oh, the mean greens. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this. You know how they got the coating on the outside of them that you got to lick and then you got to rub oh, like off? And shit. Yep. Yeah, so... What did your undershirts look like? Did it have a bunch of green on them?
1: Oh, yeah. I got, t- I got towels on deck in the car.
0: <laughs> you got all tie-dye and shit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: tie-dye towels, and I also got the hose clamps.
0: Oh, yeah. And, yeah I know all about that. And you get the little callus on your fingers from oh, using yeah. them so much. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what ends up happening is, is now you're dependent. You're starting a business. You're making some money. And then, ultimately, you start going to ASU. You start hitting parties out there, frat parties. And I want to hear a story about, you know, really this main incident that really set the course for what was to happen next, you know, stems from one extremely traumatic event that we manipulate in the future. So why don't you tell me about the story um, about that ASU frat party? So actually, I want to back it up for a second, because there's a very important part. You know, a lot of times when we tell our story, Pat, you know, we always focus on the negative things that are going on in our lives and the destruction that drugs and alcohol cause. And even when we get into recovery, we forget to appreciate the wins sometimes. I had such a low negative perception of self that it's important for me to appreciate the wins that I've had along the way as well. So you actually, out right out of high school, you're working sales jobs, you started, your dad's getting ready to start this business, which we're going to talk about more in a second and you buy a home. What what happened? What was that like? Right.
1: So basically what happened was back in 2003, the, the, the way you could buy a house was very difficult, right? There was waiting lists. I remember my dad had to put a bunch of money down just to get on a waiting list to buy his house. So we, my dad had a, a relationship with this investor from Wisconsin. They ended up buying um, a bunch of homes right off of 35th Avenue in Southern. They were brand new back in 2003. And so we had an inn. right? I was only 18 years old. Um, I was making a lot of money at that time, though. I was probably making 250 grand a year at that time working for my dad. I remember one time I made like 16 grand in one day. And uh, it just felt so good, right? So I wanted to do something different. I wanted to uh, do something on my own. I helped. I asked my dad for help. He found the investor. We went and looked at it. Boom, I closed the deal. 18 years old, I owned a 2,500 four-bedroom, three-bath um, house on 35th Avenue Southern. I got to pick all of the lighting. I got to add a balcony, an extra bathroom downstairs. It was, It was an awesome experience for me. Yeah, I mean, I bet. I mean, at that age, to
0: be able to do those things you know, not only that, you're also using drugs and, you know, so to be able to do that while using drugs and all of a sudden I hate when people say I'm a functioning alcoholic. I mean, I, I, to me, it's not a thing, you know, and I know, um, you know, certain people, you know, my dad and, you know, he, he used to say that, but I don't think my dad is a full blown alcoholic addict. I just think he's a hard user and he likes to use when he used to use, he doesn't anymore. Um, but I just think that there's no such thing, but either way, Um, so you got your own house. You're starting this business with your dad. You're partying all the time. Now you're going out to ASU and I've been out there to some ASU frat party. So let's get back to that event that I was previously talking about. So you're out at a party at ASU and what ends up happening?
1: So at this point, it was one of my best friend's birthday parties, right? Mike Goldman. And, uh, everybody's out there. There's about 300 of us and some guy showed up. Um, to start some trouble, right? There was about five of them. Well, they were way outnumbered and uh, they wanted to pick a fight with someone. And uh, that fight ended up coming out to the street. I was down the street on my cell phone with my girlfriend at the time. And uh, the guys ended up running because they're, like I said, they were way outnumbered. So it wasn't going to go down how they planned it. So they took off. They saw me. At that time, I had been known in the community for fighting, right? I had you know, years and years of wrestling on my resume. Um, my ego was flaring. I didn't think anybody could touch me in the gym or, or fighting or anything like that. Right. So I, I kind of. Uh, oh, you got ballsy. Yeah, I kind of got, <laughs> <laughs> got ballsy. Oh, you don't fucked up. You know that, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So basically they they came after me and I I didn't run. You know what I mean? I, I stood up to the biggest guy, took him to the ground. And uh, as soon as I did that, his friend took a full 40 ounce bottle and smashed me in the back of the head. And I was instantly unconscious in someone else's driveway down the street from all my friends where they could see all by myself. Right. And all of those guys that were with him um, profusely kicked me in the face. So my the back of my head is bouncing off the pavement and my face is getting kicked in over and over and over. Right. Until finally a girl coming from the other side of the condos that was walking to the party saw me and ran and told all my friends and they came, they called the ambulance. I remember it was a crazy story because my dad's at the hospital. I'm projectile vomiting because there's so much blood in my stomach that I'm, I'm, I'm vomiting all of this blood out. Right. I come to the emergency room at Scottsdale Osborne trauma center. Um, very close to death. I have, Brain trauma. My brain swelled to the point where they have to call my family in Wisconsin and tell them they don't know if I'm going to live anymore. My family flies out to see me in, in bed. I'm in a coma for about 30 days, right? Medical induced because I had so much brain trauma. But the the funny part of the story is that the sergeant there tried to give my uh, tried to get hand my dad a ticket for distributing alcohol to minors. <laughs> right oh God because he didn't realize because I had puked on his foot the but cops? It was blood he thought it was alcohol he didn't the realize cop's foot it. the cop's foot yeah. yeah so my dad ended up you know getting pretty upset about that and uh what that looked like is just a traumatic event to where I came out of the hospital after that event where I almost died with the mindset of me and my dad going into these doctor's offices. And now instead of paying for Oxycontins, like we had been doing, we would manipulate our way into their doctor's offices and tell them that we needed these prescriptions to help my pain. And so this is like what, 2004, this is
0: 2005. So 2005. And you know, my story, I wrote some prescriptions um, for, I mean, Oxycontins, opiates was my downfall. Thank God I don't have to live that way today. And we both found recovery. We get to experience life together and have an amazing life. But back then, you know, it was a hell of a lot easier. You used to be able to go, I mean, I wrote scripts, but you used to, I mean, especially with the injuries you had, I mean, I'm sure you had them x-rays everywhere you went. You, <laughs> right. know, the, you had the whole discharge summary in, in the car, carried it with you, and you could pretty much with, you know, with evidence and legit paperwork like that, I mean, what
1: were they prescribing you? So at first, they were prescribing me 12 80s a day, right? 12 Oxycontin 80s a day. So that ain't enough. No. Absolutely yeah. <laughs> not. Then you build a tolerance. That's and a mourn. That's more. a wake up. Right. So <laughs> then we would go to multiple doctors and we would convince the doctor that we were no longer with the past doctor when they because they can pull up the DEA report and mm-hmm. see that you had been getting prescriptions. But we found a way to manipulate these doctors into thinking that we no longer wanted to use that doctor because of some type of bad character that they were displaying in their <laughs> yeah. office yeah. just so we could get more pills. Right. So we went all over the Valley, bro. All, all, any pill doctor in the Valley that prescribed pain medicines, we were at their front door. Oh yeah. They knew you. Yeah. What about Dr. Robert Allen? <laughs> Dr. Allen. Yeah. I,
0: I owe that dude an amends. <laughs> and so now you, I mean, and now, you know, once we're getting prescriptions like that, or like, even when I was, you know, forging prescriptions when we have an unlimited supply that we don't have to pay for, I mean, we're just using it. I mean, it is unreal amount, but what also comes with that comes physical withdrawal, physical addiction, but it's all fun and games. When you have 15 doctors on the team, it's all fun and games and I'm able to write a prescription, but what happens when that runs out? And so the inevitable ends up happening to you, but you know, you start doctor shopping and doing all that with your dad, you guys are, you know, using the pills together, but in the midst of this time, you guys end up starting a multi-million dollar business in 2003 that you've been working on out of your garage. So why don't you share a little bit about that company because it's marvelous. You guys were hey, able, were, were you guys snorting lines in the 80s and fucking selling deals? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so share a little bit about it because, it, I mean, it's it was a legitimate company that made a ton of money. Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: Right. So when I was still in high school, my dad was a vice president for another company. He had basically made his name known in the nutrition industry, right? He came from a sales and marketing background, started making these companies a lot of money. Well, he figured out he could develop relationships with these nutrition enzyme company growers that made the materials and he could develop his own products. He didn't need to work for a company anymore. He could do it on his own. So that's what he did. He put a, a computer in the loft upstairs, a desk, and uh, turned the uh, garage into an office facility. Got a full-fledged AC unit in there, um, wired phone system, uh, shipping department right out of the garage. And that's how it all started. So when I graduated high school and, and I had been displaying my sales background and the, the, the big checks that were coming in for me, my dad's like, hold up. You know, yeah, son, hold I think you're ready. Yeah, I think you're ready for the big leagues. <laughs> right. And so he works on this for years
0: and ultimately, the you know, the major event happens and, you know, you're in a coma for 30 days and you get out, you know. And so when all you got to do is go to the doctors and then go to the pharmacy, drop it off, wait 25 minutes and go pick it up, you're not spending your whole day getting and obtaining and boosting and stealing. That comes away later. Right. But at this time, you don't have to do that. So you can go to work, you guys. I mean, you guys built this business up. When we're talking about a multi-million
1: dollar business, this was legitimately a multi-million dollar business. Legitimate. So basically, the first company he started was called Generation Plus, and we were a nutrition manufacturer. We would uh, we would have the the, the vegetable capsules um, made. We would have the bottle. We would have them bottled. We, my dad had a. Um, a team that would create the label designs. And we would basically just, my dad started out by selling these products himself, right? Until he started hiring us. And and basically it was me and a bunch of my friends, Mm -hmm. right? So I I told all my friends about it, all the ones that I thought would be good. And we started this business with my dad. And once he started making a lot of money in the manufacturing side, he said, well, I want to make more money on the consumer side, right? So he developed a company called Supplement. And it was um, to consumers only. So basically we would be getting manufacturers costing, but we would sell directly to consumers, which would make about four times more than we would make selling it to doctors and health food stores. So that's when it really started to kick off, right? I was seeing 250 to 300 grand a month coming in um, through the business um, to start out with. And we were growing and growing. We had all these plans um, to do marketing through TV, Right. My dad wanted to do an infomercial. Right. He oh, wanted, yeah. He's a sales guru. He's yeah. like, oh, I got this. I'm, I just need the, just right like the, of money. just like the My Pillow guy. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. that dude.
0: Is, he's in Except, recovery. Yeah, yeah. He's in recovery. He's cocaine. Oh, is he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's in recovery and cocaine. He's got an amazing book if you ever want to check it out. But, um, and so that's what ends up happening. You guys blow up.
1: Right. And so, but the
0: whole time
1: you guys are getting high. The whole time we're doing, uh, tons of Oxy. I started getting Xanax prescriptions. So my family in Wisconsin started getting calls from my dad where they couldn't understand what he was saying because we're sniffing so much Xanax. And we're building tolerances on these things, right? So the 80s that we were getting wasn't covering our physical dependence anymore. So we had to seek out other things on the street. My dad developed a relationship with one of the biggest Oxycontin suppliers in the state, and we started spending about 50 grand a month on top of my prescriptions, just between him and I to sniff pills at our desk at work. I
0: mean, and so those were expensive, dude. Very. I mean, <laughs> they they add up so quick. I mean, sometimes, I mean, they're selling for a dollar 80 bucks a piece, dollar a milligram, 40, 50 bucks. You get them for 35. I mean, you thought you had the greatest connect in the world. Right. And so just like everything, man, eventually the addiction catches up and then it starts to get worse for you in 2008. So 2008 starting to get bad. What's 2008 look like?
1: So my dad got married in 2006. By 2008, he was divorced. Um, our addiction was overwhelming for our families to deal with. So basically what that looked like is uh, me and my dad in a bachelor pad in Ahwatukee, um, with all the dope fiends in town coming by, supplying us with drugs and having a grand old time. And when we felt like it, we would sell some products so we would have enough dope for the next day or the next week.
0: And so, you know, it's starting to get worse. And with things getting worse comes the negative consequences. How many times you go to jail?
1: Oh, brother, probably about 40, 50 times. 40, 50, (laughs) in and out. In and out. In and out. Every time I came out, I said I was going to stop using, too. You know, my dad also, we, we battled with that physical dependency from opiates. And it was just killer. We had got our dependency so high. We were spending so much money that it was overwhelming to hit that jail cell at fourth ave on the floor Mm -hmm. and every time just like god man i need to be done right i really need to stop i promise you i'll stop just get me out of jail this one time right and that probably happened about 40 or 50 times duis um theft tickets um i had a few narcotic possession charges because i didn't have the scripts or then i started developing other addictions with other opiates and uh you know, in and out of jail, both me and my dad, both.
0: Yeah, in and out, in and out. Business starts to suffer, um, experiencing the consequences. And ultimately, man, you run that business into the ground. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, when you look back at it, I, you know, it's always, uh, you know, we look back on these things and we think, oh, I should have done this. And look what we could have done. And we had this multi million dollar business. And it's really just a phenomenal story to start a business out of your garage, you know, learn the industry like your dad did to teach you. Um, to figure out how to do the manufacturing, to figure out how to do all these things, direct to consumer and do all these things to where you're making millions of dollars and our addiction gets in the way and it takes everything from us. You know, when we really look at that today, being in recovery, and we, we understand that nothing happens in God's world by mistake. And your dad's sober today and your dad's doing amazing things. Um, and that whole journey is a trip to um, how that all happened. And we, now we know that everything happened the way it was supposed to happen because we're right now, right where we need to be, right here at this moment. And it's just the way it's supposed to be. But it takes us a long time to realize that. And so, you know, the business gets run to the ground and then you get a call from your sister, Megan. Right. And she says something about. She,
1: she says something like, I want to come visit.
0: Oh, right. Uh oh. I
1: want to come visit. I'm bringing my husband. They end up coming at this time. Me and my dad are living in another flop house in Gilbert. They're all nice houses that we're paying for with the little amount of sales effort we're putting into the business at this point. But really, there's no good influence whatsoever in the household, right? It's completely engulfed our lives, our addiction, right? We're just using all day, every day, planning the next day for the next come up. And it just looks ugly. So my sister comes. My sister at this time was a life coach. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So she comes. And and the thing is, you got to know about me is I live the double life. Right. So everybody out of town that is included in my family thought that I was doing other things than I was actually doing. So all my social media was all about sales and marketing and how I'm doing this great and this awesome. And I'm having success here. Well, my sister comes out and she sees that that's kind of bullshit. Right. But she feels bad. So she's like, you're doing all of these motivational things on social media. Why don't you just be about it? You know, and that kind of lit a spark. We went up to Sedona, we went hiking, we conquered this mountain together, we filmed it. And uh, there was this job opportunity in Florida, uh, Grant Cardone, one of the biggest influencers in the marketing industry, number one ranked by Forbes magazine. And uh, she's like, you post all this stuff all over your social media. Why don't you just try to get a job? You yeah, know, why don't
0: you go work for him? Right. And I remember when we were sitting at that bench in North Union, we were working your steps and you told me about, you know, because I've been in sales my whole life and marketing and all that kind of stuff. And I know Grant Cardone and everything and, you know, 10 X and, mm-hmm. you know, his books. And we actually had him speak to our sales floor a couple of times. Um, and so, I mean, it's just funny. Our stories are, are real similar with the sales and being successful and having plenty of opportunities, but couldn't get right in playing sports. I mean, the story is so similar. Um, And so ultimately you move out to Florida and you get a job with Grant Cardone working out there within the Florida. What was that time period like?
1: So at first it was amazing, right? I developed these new relationships with very wealthy people, but my ego wanted me to be so involved in that, that I wasn't paying attention to what really mattered in my life, right? I wasn't taking care of my priorities. And I was still flying to Phoenix once a month to get those scripts.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna need that. I need that 15. Grand. I can't be dope sick at Grant Cardone's <laughs> office, right?
1: So I was taking the morphines in the So I was prescribed oxy's and morphines, right? The mm. morphines were extended release. I was at this point, there was no more OCs. Oh, the so red human- 60 morphines? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I was getting the 200s. Oh, the, oh the, the big dogs? The ovals, yep. Yeah, okay. So I'm taking the morphines. At this time, I'm getting the perk 30s, right? The oxycodone, ACL HCL, 30 milligrams. And I'm getting about 600 at a time. My insurance is paying a week early, so I'm getting about 740 pills a month. Making between 15 and 17 grand, depending on how much I'm selling them for at any given month. So that money to me motivated me enough to, to get a plane ticket from Miami once a month. So I would fly out here, go to the doctor, get this script, go to the pharmacy right by the doctor's office and meet up with Uncle Vinny.
0: Oh, Uncle Vinny? Because <laughs> yeah. we're both Italians. Right. Yeah. Oh, you everyone's got Uncle Vinny. <laughs> right. Shout out to my Uncle Vinny. Rest mm-hmm. in peace.
1: Yeah, so basically, Vinny would meet me. He's like, hey, nephew, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you an extra dollar this month because I like your business so much, he tells me. <laughs> so he, he starts giving me more and more money for these pills because the demand's going up. And, and it's hard for people to manipulate doctors now because the government's coming down so hard on them on, on opiates because they're seeing so many fatalities. Right. So it's creating this environment where doctors aren't even comfortable anymore. But for some reason, me and my dad were always able to manipulate them into getting us what we needed.
0: And you know, you also too had that major traumatic injury, right. plates in your face, mm-hmm. plates in your on your eye. I mean, all that. So it became a lot easier. And so you're flying back and forth, you're working for Grant Cardone, you're getting, you know, amazing sales training, amazing sales job, but we're still consumed by the drugs and, and you know, and that ultimately you know, how does it end up there for you? Cause I mean, you still don't work there. So right. how does it end?
1: Right. Yeah. So what that looked like for me is I was renting a room in a condo about two blocks from the beach in sunny Isles, Florida, which is Miami, right? North Miami, rich part of Miami. And uh, I was getting a killer deal from this chick. I felt so bad because one day I get a call from my attorney in Phoenix in, in my addiction, I was out with the boys one night and uh, something happened at the bar to where I got injured. And basically, the attorney that I was working with hadn't contacted me in over a year. And I get a phone call while I'm in Miami and he's like, How does a hundred thousand sound to you? Sounds pretty like, damn good. I'm like, What? Hold yeah, on. yeah, 100 grand. I think I'm doing pretty good out here, right? I don't just want to leave. My connections I'm making, I'm developing a really close relationship with the vice president, Jared, at at Grant Cardone's office. And I'm starting to work my way into a routine out there to where I know I can become somebody, right? They see my potential. I see the promotions that are in place if I keep doing what I'm doing. But that money just looks so good, man. That money looks so good to me. So I told myself I was going to fly out on the weekend, right? And I'd be right back
0: just going to fly out i'm gonna grab the check right. i'm gonna come out i'm gonna get a bank account and put it in the bank account i'm gonna invest it right. i'm gonna get on the stock market i'm gonna turn that 100 g's into 300 g's i'm gonna be the ceo of grant cardone's spot <laughs> and it's on master plan master plan bro. did it happen it did not it <laughs> what did ends not up happening so, though
1: so i come out here and the, the attorney's like oh yeah I, I needed to tell you too we're taking 45 percent And I'm like, damn, dude, you should have told me that
0: I mean, you still would have came for fifty five.
1: Oh, I did. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I I stayed in that fifty five. I I, like you said, dude, I had all these big plans. I was going to buy these nice things and take them to Miami, fly back out there and get my life started again. Try to kick the morphine so I didn't have any attachment to drugs, but I just. For some reason, was so obsessed with the way that the drugs made me feel and the way that I could just let go of everything else in my life that I never went back to Miami, bro. Yeah,
0: you left all your stuff
1: there. Everything. I I drove an Infinity from Phoenix to Miami um, one weekend. It took me about two days to get there.
0: Straight through. Got
1: into my condo straight through. I was doing shots on the way just to make it. (laughs) So um, I left everything, man. I left everything, all of the the progress that I've made at Grant Cardone Enterprises, all of the progress I've made in developing new relationships, creating a life for myself, getting away from the crime and the addiction in Phoenix and the Valley, and just developing a new life out there. I just left it all, man. I left it all behind, and I came here, got the cash. Didn't even open up a bank account for a couple of days. Just carried the wads of cash. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Big here. balling too, yeah. huh?
1: Big balling. Right. Buying limos. <laughs> Buying limos. Party bus to Scottsdale.
0: <laughs> All the friends.
1: Right. Getting resort hotel rooms that were just so, so ridiculous. Right. And in that time frame, I realized that it's easier to buy quantities of drugs than it is. Just oh, you a had, a, you had an epiphany? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a burning bush moment, but yeah. it wasn't the right one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So I started developing relationships with Mexican cartel. because oh, that's we'll go who, straight to the source. Right. That's who that's who had the massive amounts of drugs and I had the cash to back it. So I started developing relationships with them. I remember one time I had a, a hotel right off of here on Scottsdale Road and I had an infection so bad. I see it. Yeah, he's got a I, scar on his arm. Yeah, right, I see it. I had to go to uh, back to Scottsdale Osborne, actually. Where That's I where my to... daughter
0: was born. Shout out, Scottsdale Osborne. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, so I'm back there, not for a traumatic brain injury this time, but for an infection that I got from shooting dope. And I'm sitting in the the room, and no one's there. I have no one. No friends, no family. I left two pounds of dope scratchers, gold, all of these things that I thought were, you know, providing me with success in my life at the time. Oh, the bingo
0: scratchers? <laughs> right. Yeah. I got the
1: bingo, I got the $30 scratchers, the $20 scratchers, think I'm going to win big. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Left all that in the hotel room, Um, went to urgent care. They, they basically said, we can't treat this here. This is life-threatening. My, my arm looked like Popeye's arm, right? I had one huge arm, one small arm. I go. They end up doing the surgery, but they weren't giving me enough opiates for the pain to where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm starting to get sick. You know, I'm starting to feel like shit. I unplug the monitor, take everything off. I'm in the gown.
0: Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette. I'll be right back. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> get uplift real quick. <laughs> Got in the lift, took they took me to Tempe Marketplace where I could score some clothes, walked in with a gown. Yeah. Everybody's looking at me like who the fuck is this? Butt guy? cheeks hanging out. <laughs> I, yeah. Try to tie it extra tight so my ass wasn't hanging out. Bought some clothes. The lift driver was like, Dude, what is wrong with you, man? I'm like, dude, I'm just hungry, man. Let's yeah. go to Chick fil A. <laughs> I buy the lift driver some chick yeah Yeah, don't
0: even trip, brother. I got you that 10 piece.
1: <laughs> right. You wanna shake? Yeah. <laughs> so then obviously i'm not feeling well right so he takes me straight to the dope man and it's on and popping again this time i'm staying in someone else's hotel room this time i'm spending more and more money trying to get that affirmation from people that they like me yeah and so ultimately man what ends up i mean
0: i mean and it just goes bad it goes all bad from there and you know, everything that comes with addiction, the mental obsession, the physical allergy, you know, that's what addicts have. We obsess over one, change the way we feel. We put any sort of substance into our body. We get a physical reaction called craving and that craving, we cannot control it. And we'll do anything that we could possibly do to get obtained and stay high. And especially with opiates and the physical dependence, we'll do anything to stay high. And usually when we mean anything, we mean felonies. And so ultimately, man, you end up catching a three and a half year prison sense. And so this is where we're going to end part one. You know, every time I have a, one of my recovery all stars on, this is the first episode of season three. I'm going to be bringing on everyone from my team at work at Sanctuary Recovery Centers. I'm going to be bringing on the guys from New Method. We're all one big team as well. And, you know, I always part one is usually the pain and part two comes the miracle. So I want everyone to tune into the next episode, the next episode, the miracle part two, of my story um pat's story our story together that's going to be dropped in two days so everybody tune in like subscribe continue to send me comments and be ready for part two because his story is truly a miracle